to the official Irish Association of Speech and Language Therapists podcast, the IASLT in Conversation. I'm Kira O'Toole from the IASLT PR Committee. And on Friday the 14th of May, we had Verbal Dyspraxia Awareness Day. People supported the day by wearing blue and many landmarks across Ireland and worldwide lit up in blue to highlight the day. Verbal dyspraxia, also known as developmental verbal dyspraxia or childhood apraxia of speech, affects about one in 1,000 people and is a lifelong condition. Children with developmental verbal dyspraxia have difficulty making and coordinating the precise movements required for the production of clear speech, and yet there is no evidence of damage to nerves or muscles. As a result, their speech is often unintelligible, even to family members. In recognition of Verbal Dyspraxia Awareness Day, I am joined today by Professor Tricia McCabe from the University of Sydney, Australia. Tricia is a professor of speech pathology and her research, teaching and clinical practice are all focused on improving treatments for moderate to severe speech impairments in children and adults. She has developed an intervention called Rapid Syllable Transition Training, or REST, which is based on the principles of motor learning and aims to treat the three core features of CAS, namely inconsistency across words and syllables, lengthened and disrupted co-articulatory transitions in appropriate prosody. A series of research studies have demonstrated that rest treatment can improve the speech accuracy of children and young people with CAS. She has generously published the intervention online where speech and language therapists can learn to use the intervention through handouts and useful videos. So after that very long introduction, um, can you just tell us, Trisha, maybe at first how you became interested in studying speech impairments and CES in particular? Well, it goes back to being a student. Um, so, um, so all the SLT students out there might in, remember their first ever client. My first ever client had dyspraxia, as we called it in Australia then. And I was... I was amazed at how poor his speech was and how hard it was to improve his speech and absolutely inspired by that. So um, my, my clinical supervisor at that time then became my honours supervisor. And so I, um, I did an honours project in um, the features of childhood apraxia of speech in a, a normal clinical load, yeah. um, you know, so could we see inconsistency in kids who weren't diagnosed with dyspraxia or what have you? Um, and yeah, so then I went and practiced and then I came back to the university as a clinical educator and somebody said, oh, you should do a PhD. So I did a PhD and it sort of moved along from there. That's not an uncommon path for people that their early clients um, their early, the early students that they work with then become something that they work with. Yeah. When I came into the profession, I was interested in voice and hearing impairment. And although I have worked in those areas, this has turned out to be a lifelong thing. Wow. Wow. From the very first encounter. Um, and it can be very hard to diagnose CAS and it's often overdiagnosed here. So can you think, do you, what would you recommend as some of the best ways to diagnose this condition? So it depends on the age of the child. Um, I think if we're talking the under threes, I would be hesitant to diagnose a child as having apraxia 
or dyspraxia in that age range, not because you can't, mm. but for your average clinician, we, we're trying to work out, does this child have communicative intent? If they do, is this a speech problem or a language problem? Um, and so, you know, is it that they just have a very complex and compact phonological system that's not responding because we haven't found the right key? Or is it that they actually can't make the sounds? Uh, so it is really difficult in those very young children. Yeah. Beyond that age, then we're looking for those three features as, as sort of real markers. And so inconsistent production. And here, if you're familiar with Barbara Dodd's inconsistent definition, that's probably as good an, a definition as any. That is the same word in the same context said differently on a number of occasions. Um, and then we're looking for that, that difficulty moving across sounds and syllables. So that looks then like um, speech that's broken up. So we might have syllables that are separated from each other in older kids, but it might also be um, vowel prolongations or because let's make everything longer and slower and then we might be more accurate or, you know, so there's a whole range of different features in there. I think the, the diagnostic process um, for me is start by assuming that a child with a severe speech disorder has a phonological impairment, try some phonology therapy. If the child is only responding to motor cueing, then you, you're thinking more motorically. So, you know, when I'm teaching this, I say, well, if you hear hoofbeats, think horses and phonology is the horse, the zebra is uncommon. So just because the child's not responding to therapy is not a reason to say the child has apraxia. They have to have those features um, and they also need to then respond to a motor intervention. So a child who's not responding to a motor-based intervention is probably getting the wrong treatment. A child who's making slow progress in therapy, that could just be we've picked the wrong goals yeah. rather than anything else. So I think we need to be reflective in it rather than jump to slow progress is, is diagnostic yeah. and really looking for that inconsistent and then um, difficulty, so inconsistent, Difficulty with the DDK, so the didocokinesis, the pataka, 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 or patty cake, patty cake, patty cake, real slow, disorganised, distorted productions of those. And then thinking about, particularly with older children, um, so four up, how do they go saying longer words? And so we, we might be tempted to think of, um, dyspraxia is a severe disease, but some children have it mildly and they might be okay with your single words, you know, in the, in the deep, for example, don't know if you call it the deep or the D, D app or D E A P. Um, but the, the simple words there, you know, there's shark and fish and book, those words might, they might be able to do easily, but then if you try them on strawberry, um, or, um, hippopotamus they might have many more problems so I like to use those longer words even with young kids to to test out to push their systems and see what they do yeah yeah so certainly can't be done in a single session it kind of this, this diagnosis does definitely take a little bit longer time yeah and I think 
I think if if in doubt, go with phonology and and then as you go, you won't do any harm by doing the phonological intervention. And the child will say, I can't say that sound. I don't know how to say that word rather than saying, yes, I'm saying it and and having it wrong. That real phonological, I don't understand why you don't understand me. So your intervention, um, it's relatively new, I I suppose, but can you tell us, I know there's a lot involved in it, but briefly, what is involved in, in this intervention? Okay, so... It comes from an idea from um, Don Robin, who's an American speech pathology researcher, um, where and um, Anita Vandermeer, who's South African, and both of them have used the idea that nonsense words, not so made up words, don't use the linguistic system in the same way. So if I ask you, if I show you a picture of an elephant, you have a stored, rehearsed version of elephant how you say it and it doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong you're you're going to say it that way each time and if you have a motor learning problem like dyspraxia you're going to say it the wrong way each time and get better at saying it in the wrong way Um, so the idea of using nonsense words is that you don't have a stored form of them you have to make a new motor plan to say the nonsense word and so you know, we use nonsense words like bidiga or tagubi. Um, and those nonsense words, and, and, you know, it's quite a complex thing, but those nonsense words are made up of the sounds that the child can say and they don't know what's going to come next. They don't know which nonsense word they're going to be asked to say. So every time they're making a new production. So we don't do drill like um, bidiga, 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 bidiga. We do bidiga, tagubi, um, and so forth. So all of them are mixed up and each time the child's getting a new one to say. So each session is made up of um, what we might call traditional therapy, teaching the child how to do this task. And then, and they have to get it right, exactly the same match as the adult production. So I say betaga to you, now you say it. Okay, so you've matched me, good job. But if you had said beta-ga, you'd be wrong. And if you said beta-ga, you'd be wrong. And if you'd said be-ba-ba, you'd be wrong. So any variation from what the adult said um, is incorrect. Okay. And this is tough. This is much tougher than most speech language therapists do most of the time. Yeah. Um, so we get the child to we say the word the child says the word we tell them whether they got it right or not and we don't tell them how to fix it we just move on to the next one so we have this pre we have this teaching component where we teach them how to say the words and then we have this practice component which makes up most of the session where they're just repeating these nonsense words and being told if they got it right or wrong and really using that very tough standard of it has to match if it doesn't match if in any way you're unsure it's wrong that's really hard for most speech and language therapists Mm. because they're going almost nearly (laughs) not quite and all of these things that we do to try and make the child feel better and us feel better we we got rid of all of them and so what we're doing is we're just getting the child to do drill 
and they're getting right wrong feedback and they have to try and fix it the next time that nonsense word comes around in 20 or 30 attempts time they have to fix it themselves um, and then the next session you start all over again you do some more teaching on the words that the child couldn't say or the problems the child had and then you do more drill and the kids if you treat it like a game like a, a computer game so you've got levels two syllables three syllables or these nonsense words in phrases um, so they're going to level up and they know in a computer game that when you level up it's harder so you don't get as many right and we talk about a personal best or a game high oh you got seven out of 20 right that time now seven out of 20 in most speech and language therapy is terrible but kids go seven out of 20 right okay so this time I got nine out of 20 hey I improved and they they just love that step up step up based on um you know the computer games that they will play so this is kids minimum age of four we did try it with three-year-olds and they just couldn't manage it so minimum age of four but really works effectively from about six or seven um, up and in the research we've gone to age 14 but I know lots of people have used it all the way to the end of high school and I've now used it with an adult with aphasia um, and that's been effective as well. Uh, sorry, adult with a, an acquired apraxia, and that's been a, a, effective as well. So, sorry, I, I've, I've no, taken the answer that. But, um, nonsense words, a little bit of teaching. So if you had a 50-minute session, 10 minutes of traditional therapy, and then the rest of the session is drill. Okay. And, you know, that really hard standard, it's either right or it's not, mm -hmm. and you almost or nearly or not quite you just be very direct with the kids and they love it right. because they know they they know the rules it's either right or it's not and in your research um like what sort of what's the model that it works best for like how often you should be delivering it yeah so we've been playing with that uh, in australia um we have very poor services once the children start school we have good services until the children start school and then uh, for most children, they get very limited services once they're school age. And so our original research was four days a week for three weeks. So they had 12 sessions in a very short period. Um, and that worked when it was in the vacation times, the school holidays. Um, so, you know, instead of going to swimming lessons, they came to... Um, speech therapy and then they got to go and do something nice after their hour of therapy that worked really well and we also did telehealth um, that form so you can do rest um, by zoom uh, and that works equally as well we then tried twice a week to see if you could reduce the intensity and stretch it out over six weeks that worked well but not as well as the intense period and we're just finishing up studying once a week. And again, that's sort of each time you make it less intense, you get less effect. Mm. We've also tried parent training, training parents to do it, because mostly what we do is we see children once a week or once every two weeks in normal practice and give parents homework to do. And that didn't work at all. The parents hated doing it. They hated telling the child they were wrong as often as they had to 
Um, and many of them, when we looked at the videos of them doing it, weren't very good at it either. So we absolutely do not recommend parent training. At this point, twice a week is as much as I would come down to. I don't know that the once a week um, we can recommend yet. Um, but what the challenge is, is if you would see children once a week during each school term, that might be 10 or 12 sessions you see them, depends on how many weeks you have in your school term. Instead of spreading them once a week, it would be much better to squish them into three weeks and have the other seven weeks with no therapy. Um, you'll get a better change. The children get some time where they don't have to go to therapy. And so if you're withdrawing them from class, they don't get withdrawn from class, which is good. And or their parents don't have to traipse bring them to therapy, take them back again. So it, parents don't mind doing it if they know that it's for a short term. You can't um, keep doing that intensity for a long period, but you can for a short period. Yeah. The other thing about the intensity, though, is that you can, you can split it between two clinicians. So if you've got two job-sharing SLTs, then you can split. One does two days, the other does two days. Um, you can have some sessions in the clinic and some by Zoom um, when COVID allows face-to-face -face therapy, of course. So all of those variables, that's all happened in our research and so that's fine. Um, but we're really not recommending the once-a-week model if you can avoid it and certainly absolutely not recommending parent homework. Okay, that's great. That's really good to know. And I, I mentioned that on your website, there, you have lots of resources and training materials. Can, can people learn to do it from there? Or do you think they'd need to yep. attend the course? Yep. No, that's exactly what they're there for. Yeah. Uh, it's free. We don't give out certificates or licenses. And mostly that's because I'm very frustrated by those systems myself. Um, but that also means we don't guarantee and we can't say, oh, I'm so-and-so certified or such-and-such such trained. You can do rest therapy. You don't need permission. Just go ahead and do it. There's a manual. There's training videos. There's a step-by-step. -step, there's a whole lot of resources so that you don't have to make up the nonsense words. You can just use the ones we made earlier. And so clinicians sometimes send us the resources they've made and we'll put them up and share them it's a really we're trying to do a community mm -hmm. um, of practice yes yeah, so we've just recently um, shown that it's effective in italian um and so you know if you had um irish speaking clinicians who want to provide therapy in irish we'd put those materials up as well Gosh, that's great and it's, it's great to have it so available and, and and those adaptations that you said I mean it has to be intense but the fact that you can do it remotely and people are used to doing that you know as well so that's that's fantastic and so I suppose our services in Ireland like like no more than yourselves aren't fantastic and um, but we're getting there and I think the evidence behind what we're doing is improving through, you know through researchers like yourself all the time so I suppose, would you have any last um, advice for families of, of children or, or people with, with CAS themselves about their, the long-term kind of look, outlook for them? Yeah, so it, it's an um, interesting question. Nobody has, so there's one team in the US who've done a little bit of research about the long-term prospects for children with apraxia. 
Um, and then there are some single case studies about the long-term prospects. I think as we get better at diagnosis and we get better treatments, and REST is one of those, but also dynamic temporal and tactile cueing DTTC, which is also free for training, um, and the Nuffield program, which many of your clinicians will know about. Um, as we get better treatments, and as we get better at diagnosis, I think the prognosis, what, what I might have said about someone who had therapy, that child that I talked about at the beginning, his prognosis probably wasn't very good because we didn't have good treatments. But the treatments are improving so much at the moment and the research is improving so much at the moment that I think if you were diagnosing a three or a four-year-old now, the prognosis of uh, good speech, intelligible speech, passing, as we might say if we talk about stuttering, um, is very good. What we need to be careful of is what happens along the way so that as speech pathologists and as parents, we don't start off with things that cause problems later on. So we need to be wary of literacy from the very beginning because if you can't sound out and blend, you're going to have trouble learning to read um, in English. And that means we need to be working on those things to sort of inoculate the child against reading problems um, before they get to school. And that will then help them have more academic success. As their speech improves, we don't want to wait until their speech is sufficiently intelligible for their literacy to come along. So we've recently been doing some research about um, are there any psychosocial effects of having apraxia? And so we've um, collected some information, some psychological surveys from adults who were diagnosed as having dyspraxia when they were children. And we find that the how their speech is now predicts their psychosocial outcomes. So um, adults who had a diagnosis and whose speech hasn't fully resolved and who still have speech problems are more likely to have anxiety about speaking. They're more likely to avoid speaking activities and so forth, very much like what we know with stuttering or stammering. Um, so I'm hoping that if we go back in time and fix what happens when the child is four or five or six, that these long-term outcomes will uh, improve. So um, at this stage, what we know is that with good therapy and intensive therapy, um, you can um, have intelligible um, appropriate, not different to the community speech, mm -hmm. um, but new words, um, complex new words. If somebody, if you've never said it before and somebody asks you to say chrysanthemum or um, hypotenuse, then you might have trouble with those words. We haven't yet worked out how to deal with the new word problem, but elsewise, um, the prognosis is positive. Great. Okay. So thank you so much for taking your time in your evening over there to uh, have a chat with me today. And um, we look forward to following you and seeing where you go with your REST intervention. It's, it's certainly looking very, very positive. So thanks very much. Thank you, Kiara. It's been a delight. Thank you.